Cue sappy music. Hey there, Fighting for the Faith podcast listener. Just want to remind you at the top of the program here that Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. You know, no, the music isn't working. Kill the music. Yeah, sorry. I see other guys use sappy music. I, uh, bad idea. Remind me to talk to you after the program. Anyway, just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions to keep bringing this program to you. If you don't support us financially already, visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on one of the friendly yellow buttons. Fill it all out. You know what to do. Or if you would like to do the traditional thing, you can make your check payable to Fighting for the Faith. Send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Okay, now you can play your music. Yeah. Enjoy listening to the program. I enjoyed making it. I hope you enjoy listening to it. Here we go. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Tuesday, August 14th, 2012. Mm-mm. Oh, have we got a barn burner for you today? I can't remember the last time I've combined these different people all in one program. Yeah, we'll see here in a second. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseboro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Sadly, there's no shortage of crazy things being said about God, and one of the major culprits regarding the crazy things being said out there is a false understanding of, well, prayer and listening to God and things like that. What I mean by that is this, is that there is there are a whole lot of folks out there who really believe that they're getting direct revelation from God and they're putting that direct revelation from God, not just on par with Scripture, but in many times they're putting it above Scripture. Scripture gets judged by their religious experiences, their dreams, their visions, their whatever. And uh, and you know, uh, Dan Phillips of the Pyromaniacs blog, he has a fun term that he uses to regard you know in regards to these people he calls them leaky cannon charismatics cannon is not a you know the kind of cannon that you stick a cannonball in and you know aim fire you know that's not what he's talking about but cannon as in the cannon of scripture they're leaky cannons they're leaky cannoneers and so on today's edition of fighting for the faith we <laughs> Man, it's, I, I'm just looking at this going, how on earth, are, how did I put this particular program together? Um, we're going to be looking at leaky canon folks and also those who cut themselves off from the canon. It's kind of a weird combination here. And so uh, today, uh, let me, in fact, we're going to have to dive into it pretty early, in fact, in just a minute, because there's so much ground to cover on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. Let's talk about what we're going to be doing. We're going to be uh, listening to uh, Lenny Walker again. Um, she's got a segment that we're going to be playing entitled Breakfast with Jesus. 
And this is if this is an exa- an example of what it means to have a leaky cannon, then I don't know what is. So we're going to be listening to again Lenny Walker talking about breakfast with Jesus. We're then going to switch to a blog post that was put up today at the Pyromaniacs blog by Dan Phillips entitled The Charismatic Lexicon Part 1. Now, I've edited uh, Dan's uh, post. You'll see what I've done to it. And it, it, the reason why is I'm trying to make it a little bit more radio-friendly. It reads perfectly fine, but in order to do it radio-friendly, I've had to, well, be a little bit creative. So we're going to be taking a look at that. Then we're going to switch gears, Okay. Uh, we're going to switch gears from the charismatic lexicon and the leaky canon folk, the people who are receiving these direct revelations from God, to looking at kind of the opposite end. What if you're a radical uh, skeptic, if you're a modernist liberal or a postmodernist liberal? Um, you've cut yourself off from the Bible altogether and kind of on the other end of the spectrum, same kind of problem. It's a problem regarding the authority of Scripture, whereas the leaky canon charismatic denies the, the authority of Scripture by adding to it the radical skeptical modernist liberals and postmodern liberals in emergence they don't believe in the authority of scripture either but uh, and so they've got a problem though <laughs> and that is is that if you deny the authority of scripture by constantly attacking it undermining it redefining it deconstructing it what are you left with that you can substan- substantively say regarding God? Answer, you really can't say much. And uh, Tony Jones of the Emergent Church has, has recently blogged about this particular problem, and it's hilarious. It's absolutely hilarious. We'll then end the, uh, the hour off with a Rick Warren devotional uh, in, where he explains the four benefits of understanding your uniqueness. <laughs> Whereas, okay, so here's the other issue. So what happens if you at least verbally claim that you believe in the authority of Scripture? Okay, what good is that if when given a Scripture, you don't actually teach what it says, you teach something different and point yourself to yourself? That's going to be the other problem here because you, you, there's like all kinds of different ways, ways to run off the rail and the issue is every what all of these folks have in common is they refuse to have their consciences bound by what the scripture says whether they're conservative liberal liberal or charismatic they all suffer some, from the same problem and then what we'll do for hour number 2 we're going to be going to uh, Ch- uh, Chambersburg, Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania. Maybe it's Chambersburg. I don't know, but uh, Pennsylvania to uh, listen to a sermon by a guy by the name of Chuck Frank entitled "Created to Be Extraordinary." It, another, another really rank, nasty example of narcissistic eisegesis. Otherwise, what we call here at Fighting for the Faith, narcissus. Eisegesis, by the way, comes from the Greek word "ice" and then "jesus." It means to read something in to a text, rather than what you're supposed to be doing, exegesis, reading out what God has revealed in his written word. Eisegesis is when you read things into the text that are not there. Narcissistic eisegesis is when you read yourself into the text when you ain't there. And the most egregious forms of this uh, particular phenomenon that we've been uh, documenting and recording here at Fighting for the Faith and putting out an apologetic against it uh, for some time now, is when you read yourself into a biblical text that's about Jesus. It's a terrible phenomenon, and uh, we have another example of that today uh, for our sermon review. So 
what I we're going to have to dive into it. And so I, I really feel strongly that we're going to need to play our warning today. So, uh, you know, because today's episode of Fighting for the Faith, there's some strange stuff going on in this episode. So here's our standard warning. warning. Fighting for the faith can be dangerous to your health. Listening with caution is strongly urged while doing any of the following activities. Operating heavy, deadly equipment, playing Farmville, or any time-wasting, brain-numbing activity for such an awakening at the sound of a particularly stupid isogetical statement could cause neck strain. Drinking liquids, drinking hot liquids, having liquids too nearby, not having any liquids nearby. The following medical conditions have been known to occur while listening to Fighting for the Faith. Cranial keyboard embedment syndrome, sinu-nasal liquid spewment disorder, steering wheel pounding clenched fist strain, continual gaping dry mouth atosis, and frustrative disbelief brain explosion. Please take proper precautions. Drinking straws, padding, and duct tape are recommended. Okay. Have you ever had breakfast with Jesus? Um, you know, taken a journal and written down the things that Jesus is revealing directly to you. Maybe tweeted them out as little God nuggets or things like that. Well, here's Lenny Walker um, to explain uh, what she calls breakfast with Jesus, and you'll notice that she's one of these leaky canon charismatics who puts her experiences above or on par with Scripture, and we've got all kinds of new revelation that ain't nobody ever heard before. But he, again, here's Lenny Walker to explain um, what she calls breakfast with Jesus. Here we go. Hi, my name is Lenny Walker, and I'm here at our Dunamis Training Center here in Las Vegas, and we teach people here how to do the works of Jesus and take it to the streets. And we have people that are coming here from all over the world to attend our Dunamis Training Institute. We have one-week intensives throughout the year that people come to. So um, people are getting trained and taking it all over the world. And one thing I want to talk to you about is the way that I have trained myself to hear the voice of the Lord. Okay, did you hear, hear, hear that? This is one way in which she has trained herself to hear directly the voice of the Lord. Okay, um, when I hear the voice of the Lord, I open my Bible and I read it. Because all scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for training, correcting, rebuking. So the man of God may be fully equipped for every good work, that kind of thing. So, okay, but that's not what she's referring to. She's referring to how do you hear, you know, how do you tune in your heart to the right frequency that the Holy Spirit is apparently broadcasting on special messages and revelations to you? Well, Lenny, please explain. And I call it breakfast with Jesus. Okay, so one of the techniques, it's called breakfast with Jesus. That's how you hear it, okay. And this is exactly what I do every morning. I get my coffee, my toast, my Bible, and my journals. And I have my conversation with Jesus, and I just figure he's sitting there with me. Mm, you just figure that. Okay. So you just figure that while you're having your coffee and toast, Jesus is sitting there with you just waiting to say something. Really? And talking. And so, um, lest you think I'm going crazy, I want to read you a verse <laughs> that confirms this. Okay, so there's a verse in the Bible that confirms that Jesus wants to have breakfast with you. Can't wait to hear it. And it's found in Habakkuk, in the Bible, here in chapter 2, verse 1. 
Okay, <clears throat> I got to pause here for a second because uh, there's uh, y'all familiar with magicians how they engage in sleight of hand and stuff like that. If you're familiar with close up magic, it's fascinating to watch the people who've really mastered those particular techniques because they engage in misdirection and sleight of hand in order to create the illusion that they are you know that they somehow have magical skills. And we all know that it's a trick, it's an illusion. They're just really good at it. Well. Uh, unfortunately, Lenny's doing the same thing here, except for not with cards or with little balls and cups. She's doing it with the word of God, okay? Now, let me give you our three primary rules for sound biblical exegesis. They are context, context, and context. Now, here's the question that I have. Does Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 1, 2, and 3, do those verses teach us that God wants to have breakfast with you or that Jesus wants to have breakfast with you? And that these, this, this, do this, does this text reveal that God is expecting you to sit down with a pen and paper to hear from him? Okay. So let me begin with Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 1. Since she's in chapter 2, verses 1, 2, and 3, um, I think that we can add a little bit more what's going on here. here Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 1 reads, The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. Okay, so this is what God specifically spoke to the prophet Habakkuk. No expectation here that we should be hearing the same things that Habakkuk heard, not, none of us being uh, Old Testament prophets the way he was, but let's read a little bit. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence, and you will not save? Why do you, not, why do you make me see iniquity, and why do you idly look at, at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed. Justice never goes forth. The wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted look among the nations and see wonder and be astounded for i am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if i told you for behold i'm raising up the chaldeans that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own they are dreaded and fearsome their justice and dignity go forth from themselves that's a bad thing by the way their horses are swifter than leopards more fierce than the evening wolves their horsemen press Proudly on, their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress. They pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their, is their God. Oh, okay, so God basically has revealed to Habakkuk that he's going to send these Chaldeans as a punishment against idolatrous Israel. Mm -hmm. Now, you'll notice here that already in the first 11 verses, nothing here about instruction for you to hear, have breakfast with Jesus. It doesn't seem to be the gist of what the prophet Habakkuk received directly from God himself. But let's continue verse 12. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die, O Lord. You have ordained them as judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at, a wrong, at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallow up and the man more, uh, the man more righteous than he? You will make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He, 
He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury, and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? Next chapter. I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and I will answer concerning my com- uh, and will answer concerning my complaint. So he's got a complaint with God. He's going to stand and wait. So then the Lord answered me. Write the vision. Make it plain on tablets so that he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to its end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol, like death. He has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects at his own all peoples. Shall not these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own, for how long and loads himself with pledges? Will not the debtor suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them because you have plundered many nations. All the remnant of the people shall plunder you for the blood of man and violence to the earth to cities and all who dwell in them. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house and to set his net nest on high to be safe from the reach of harm. Okay, now stop there for a second. Aha, so um, Habakkuk chapter 2, verse uh, 1, 2, and 3 is not instructing us to take a tablet and write these things down. That was a direct instruction to the prophet Habakkuk because God was going to answer a particular thing regarding his complaints before God. Why aren't you acting, God? Look at the evil that's taking over. Why aren't you doing anything? And God answers. And not only that, the Lord answers Habakkuk and tells him to write these on a tablet so that the person who reads them would run, run, because this is a prophecy of judgment, right? Nowhere here is this said that this is somehow normative, that you, 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 you or me are called to grab, grab a writing tablet, a pen and paper or you know, your iPad with a stylus and, and take, you know, and take down notes as if you were having breakfast with Jesus. That's not what this text is saying at all. And so already we've got a problem because Lenny Walker is, well, she's engaging in biblical sleight of hand and the only reason she's able to get away with it is because she refuses conveniently to read the passage in context so Habakkuk chapter 2 doesn't say to you or to me have breakfast with Jesus and have a pen and paper handy so let's continue with uh, what she's saying here though verse 1 and verse 2 and verse 3 and it says I will stand my watch and set myself on the rampart and watch to see what he will say to me. Isn't that interesting? It's talking about seeing and hearing all at once. And I will watch to see what he will say to me and what I will answer when I am corrected. Then the Lord answered me and said, Write the vision and make it plain on tablets that he may run who reads it. For the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it will speak and it will not lie. Militaries, wait for it, because it will surely come. It will not tarry. So, the point is, 
Uh, you're not Habakkuk. Um, so you can sit there and say that you're spending time with Jesus, but Habakkuk chapter 2, the, the verses you read say nothing about you spending time with Jesus and watching and waiting and then writing down what God tells you. That's not what this passage is saying. And I listen, and then here it says to write it down and make it plain. So I have my conversation with the Lord. This journal here is me talking with Jesus and him talking back to me. So I even do little sketches here of what I picture from him. Um, in fact, this one's kind of funny because I have me in a hammock and I say Jesus is my rest. <laughs> and so I write down the things I'm thankful for, my petitions, and then I get quiet and I listen to him, pay attention to him. And then I either draw a sketch of what I feel like he's telling me, or else I'll just write down what he's saying. And the really cool thing is that when I look back over the years and check through, I see all the ways that God has answered prayers, the blessings he's brought my way, the encouragement he's brought to me, just as I write down what he is saying. Okay, hold it right there. I hate to say this, but we have got to interrupt this update, this Patricia King gang update, with a Perry Noble update. I, I know we've never done that before, interrupted an update with another update, but unfortunately we've got to wedge an update into this update in order to, well, finish out the segment. You'll see what I'm saying about here. So without any further ado, let's interrupt with a Perry Noble update. It really doesn't matter what I do, what, what I, I do, as, as long as, as I, I do it with a flare. What effect a little smoke is with a dash of hocus pocus and the scent of burning sulfur in the air. I'm a fraud, a hoax, a charlatan, a joke, but they love me everywhere. For it really doesn't matter what I do, what I do, as long as I do it with a flare. And it really doesn't matter what I say, what I say, as long as I say it with a flare. First I rattle off a ready stock of gibberish and poppycock and fix you with my best hypnotic stare. With my moans and groans and sufferific tones, they have cheered me everywhere. For it really doesn't matter what I say, what I say. I sell it when I tell it with a sheer. Yeah, now, as odd as it sounds, we're interrupting our Patricia King gang update with a Perry Noble update for a very good reason. Now, from the uh, New Spring Church, you can find this at newspring.cc, uh, click on their blog, and the blog entry is entitled 28 Days That Changed My Life. 28 Days That Changed My Life. Now, I'm going to skip down to the end of this and see if any of this sounds familiar to you. The the headline the section headline reads dialogue with God. <clears throat> the Lord desires His very best for you. Knowing what His best is takes time, not just time talking to Him, but time to be still and listen. Psalm chapter thirty seven verse seven commands us: "Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for Him." Yeah, but it doesn't say to write anything down and listen for it. Yeah, Psalm 37 doesn't teach us. But anyway, when you have some uninterrupted time, sit quietly with a pen and a paper and wait. 
Then write what you hear during the silence. This uh, sounds like a simple task, but for many of us, it's a real challenge. Discipline yourself to set aside a time of stillness before the Lord to hear God speak. He will speak right to your heart. Today, or maybe early tomorrow, when you sit with your Bible, journal, pen, and coffee, know that the Lord is already there and he wants to meet with you. Weird. Isn't that weird that Perry Noble of New Spring Church has the exact same technique that he's offering to the biblical world out there, the church world out there, that Lenny Walker of Dunamis is breakfast with Jesus. But does it surprise you at all that Perry Noble would also buy into this technique of breakfast with Jesus? He's a leaky cannoneer, is he not? He believes that he's received a direct vision from God that tells him how to uniquely do church there in, uh, in, in, in South Carolina, right? Hmm. So he's a leaky cannoneer who also has breakfast with Jesus, which probably explains a lot of his bad theology. Why? Because he has his experiences on par with and probably above God's word, just like Lenny Walker does. So what what do Perry Noble and Lenny Walker both have in common? They both have breakfast with Jesus with a pen and paper handy so that they can listen to the silence and then write down what apparently Jesus is speaking to them in the silence. Weird, isn't it? I just thought it would be kind of fun to interrupt this breakfast with Jesus segment with a Perry Noble segment to point out how Perry Noble also has breakfast with Jesus. Explains a lot. We continue, though, with Lenny Walker. Here we go. There's another journal that I use occasionally. It's my creative journal, and I write down poetry. And we do what we call tapping into flow. So we connect with heaven. uh, Tapping into flow. Connect with Jesus, with the Holy Spirit, with Papa, our Heavenly Father. With who? Papa? That You mean the, the God from the book The Shack? Yeah, that's a false God, by the way. And then um, creativity comes from heaven, I believe, it, because he is a creative God. And when we move in creativity, it's an expression of God through us. And so I write poetry and, um, and even draw little sketches beside some of them of what it means. And so that's another one of my journals. I have another journal here that's my garden journal. And for those of you who haven't heard uh, the teachings that we do here on the garden, that each one of us has a garden in heaven that we're supposed to tend to. And when we tend to it in heaven, it affects our life here on earth. And it changes. Yeah, by the way, that's not taught in the Bible. That's a unique teaching to them that apparently they learned while having breakfast with Jesus that all of us have a garden somewhere in heaven that we're supposed to tend to, and it'll change our life here if we can just uh, tap into our garden in heaven. By the way, from my Facebook wall, uh, Jennifer writes, she says, I'm listening now to the prophet and apostle, Dennis Walker. Tell me about my garden in the second heaven that needs tending to. Yeah, there's the thing. I I never like games like Farmville or The Sims because real life is already enough work for me. I I don't want to also lose a game because I don't spend enough time keeping up my cyber world. Therefore, if Christianity really included a mystical second heaven garden that I need to check in and fix every night, you could count me out. (laughs) 
I'm with you, too. I mean, seriously, nowhere in the Bible does it say I have a second heaven garden that I've got to tend to. But according to the prophet and apostle Dennis Walker and Lenny Walker's, her, uh, his wife, um, apparently there's a garden. So who knew? I mean, you know, so we got second heaven Gardenville that you've got to be tending to on a daily basis in order to make your life better. Again, leaky canon, C-A-N-O-N, leaky canon. These, this is nowhere taught in Scripture, yet apparently these are, this, is, this is all godly doctrine because they claim that it comes from God. To challenge them is to, well, challenge God himself. It changes things. It brings blessing and change and transformation. And I encourage you to go to our website and get the CD that my husband does on the garden. It's in a, a two-CD pack. Yeah, you won't find it in your Bible. The three heavens and the garden. And it will just bring understanding to you of the revelation that Jesus gave to him about this and the scriptures that go with that. So here again, I do little drawings of what I see in my garden in heaven and the things that I command for it to change. And it brings change in my personal life. And um, so I just want to encourage you to spend time with the Lord and find your garden in heaven. First, go to third heaven. Go to where it says in Colossians 3, 1 and 2, to seek those things which are above. Yeah, Colossians 3, 1 and 2 doesn't say that you can ascend into the third heaven. Where you are seated with Christ uh, at the right hand of God. And so your your spirit man is already seated in heavenly places. You're already there. You're a bidimensional person. You're spiritual and you're physical. And um, so spend time with Jesus in third heaven. And then he's going to show you where your garden is. You'll begin to understand it better by listening to the CD. And then watch it influence your physical life as well. Mm, okay, so here's a question I have for you, okay? Apparently this whole second heaven garden thing is something that, well, they, that Dennis and Lenny Walker learned while having breakfast with Jesus. Perry Noble teaches us to have breakfast with Jesus too. Do you think Perry Noble would say, no, 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 Jesus didn't really say that when he basically says the same, to do the same technique? I mean, what do you do when, you know, I, I'd be curious if he if he is tending his garden in the second heaven. Because, I mean, they got that via direct revelation while sitting in silence during breakfast with a cup of coffee, with a pen and paper like he said to do. Yeah, see, I, I mean, this is just basically a formula for doctrinal anarchy. Doctrinal anarchy. And again, the problem here is not submitting to the authority of God's word and believing that God's word is sufficient. In fact, it's a basically a belief that God's word is not sufficient, and which kind of leads me into my next segment here. I would like to uh, bring in from uh, the Pyromaniacs blog Dan Phillips's piece entitled "The Charismatic Lexicon, Part One." The Charismatic Lexicon, Part 1, from Dan Phillips of the Pyromaniacs blog. Dan writes, he says, In the interest of communication and instruction, and because I'm here to help, I offer this lexicon. I'm calling it Part 1 because, A, I'm sure there'll be more, uh, because, B, I'm pretty sure readers will supply some great stuff, and, C, I will steal and publish it here and claim it as my own. I, you know, By the way, Dan, I do the same thing. When people post really good zinger thingies on my uh, either on Twitter or Facebook, I end up just stealing them. <laughs> but I let the person know I'm going to steal it. But anyway, so here's the idea. In order to understand this charismatic lexicon that uh, Dan Phillips is working on, and by the way, I took some liberties with it, um, There are there's basically two terms or two people being represented. One is a biblically oriented Christian, and the other is a leaky canon charismatic. 
the Leaky Cannon Charismatic. So what I'm going to do in order to help out here is I will be speaking the part of the biblically oriented Christian who actually believes the Bible is sufficient. And to help me out, I'm going to be using my Macintosh. Uh, and the Mac, my Macintosh is going to be reading the part of the Leaky Cannon Charismatic. In fact, here's Moira to introduce herself. Hello, I'm Moira. I'm a Leaky Cannon Charismatic and I hear directly from God, which means that I deny the sufficiency of God's Word and put my experiences, dreams, and visions on the same level, or even a little higher, than the Bible. Okay, so that's Moira. She'll be doing that. So, okay, so for, for this uh, for this experiment here, I, like I said, I made some edits just to make it be- better for radio. But uh, <clears throat> from the uh, from the charismatic lexicon, uh, the the t- the the topic is the Bible. And uh, as a biblically oriented Christian, I would say the Bible is the culmination of millennia of revelation in a completed, wholly sufficient, and closed canon. Uh, Moira, what do you have to say to that? Yeah, whatever. Okay, all right, all right. Now, next topic, feelings, feelings, okay? Uh, Feelings are just feelings. That's what a biblically-oriented Christian would say. But Moira, what do you have to say about that? That's the Holy Spirit. Okay, so feelings are the Holy Spirit. How about a hunch? Uh, What do you have to say about that? That's also the Holy Spirit. Uh Uh-huh. How about a silly passing thought? Again, that's the Holy Spirit. Have you noticed a trend yet? Yes, I have. How about an impulse that's best to be rejected after a bit and wise and critical reflection? Ahem. That's also the Holy Spirit. I see. How about testing by scripture and rational examination? That's unbelief. Oh, I see. Okay. What about walking in gracious, faith-driven obedience, which definitionally and consciously rests on the written word of God alone? What do you say about that? That's deism. Okay, I see. How about living impulsively and irresponsibly and eschewing biblical analysis and responsible decision-making and then blaming that whole mess on God? We call that moving in the spirit or taking a spirit walk. Got it. Okay. What about an undocumented anecdotal story allegedly done in a corner of the globe thousands of miles away and then transmitted through the world's longest game of telephone? What do you say about that? That's undeniable proof that the gifts continue. Got it. Okay. Um, hmm. How about this? How about the undeniable absence of substantiated and globally accepted claims to the revelatory attesting gifts? among the biblically orthodox from really the first century until 1906. What do you say about that? Hey, look, a comment. I see. Um, How about the undeniable fact that modern instances of substantiated and globally accepted claims to revelatory attesting gifts among the biblically orthodox depends on a drastic reinterpretation of scripture and also playing fast and loose with the laws of evidence? Uh, what do you got to say about that? Um. I've got nothing. Didn't think you did. Okay. Um, let's how about this? Prophecy is an explicitly biblically defined phenomenon in which God gives inerrant binding direct revelation to someone and assures that it is communicated as such and it's objectively verifiable. What do you say about that? Prophecy is whatever you say it is, except it's not verifiable or falsifiable. Got it. Okay. Um, how about 
insisting on redefining the biblical teaching about the descriptions of revelatory and attesting gifts so as to smuggle pale imitations into a time frame some 20 centuries after their disappearance. What do you say about that? We call that one of the non-negotiable essentials of the faith. Got it. Okay. How about affirming the all-over-the-Bible teaching regarding the sovereignty of God in salvation? What do you say about that? That's totally negotiable and a relatively minor and insignificant teaching. I see. So I got one. All right. Well, let's try this reverse one. How about this? A divine healing that undeniably proves all charismatic claims. I see. So a divine healing uh, that, that supposedly proves all charismatic claims. Well, plain and simple. Uh, that We call that answered prayer. God healing, which all Christians have always confirmed and have distinguished from the gift of healing um, that's talked about in the New Testament. Anyway, so there you go. That's Dan Phillips's piece, uh, the, the Charismatic Lexicon Part 1, and I'd like to thank my computer and Moira for uh, for ba- basically being a good sport and playing the role of the leaky canon charismatic. I think the point made here is that you see what's going on, is that when you deny the sufficiency of Scripture, you are left to be hopelessly subjective in your pursuit of God, and you have nothing on which you can basically hang anything onto with any certainty. You're chasing feelings, hunches, impulses, and all of this other stuff, and you ha- literally have to redefine what the Bible says regarding the uh, the these gifts, you know, these sign gifts. Uh, to basically fit the, the theology that you've constructed. It's not exegeted, it's eisegeted, and it's Bible-twisting that leaves you, well, focusing in on these experiences and gifts rather than focusing in on Christ and Him crucified for our sins and abiding in and guarding His Word, which is what the Bible commands us to do. All right, what we're going to do here is we're going to take our first break, and when we come back, we're going to look at the kind of the the opposite end of the spectrum regarding those who don't abide by the authority of Scripture. That's going to be liberals who attack it, and then conservatives who give lip service to the authority of Scripture, but then twist it to say what basically what it doesn't say in order to smuggle in their own teaching. Kind of a weird phenomenon. I'll explain that on the other side of the break. Now, if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. We will be right back. When he asked Peter, who do you say that I am? Jesus wasn't looking for affirmation. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough. Of the sissy, pansy, turning for the written music, you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Almighty, 
Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. Max Holiday's Birdcage Theater presents Church Day Select. Siri, what is your analysis of the sermon Rick Warren preached this past Sunday? Let me think about that. Here you go. Rick Warren quoted 15 Bible verses out of context using 11 different translations and paraphrases. Even an iPhone utilizing artificial intelligence is smart enough to know that there is less than a 1 in 10,000 chance that Rick Warren was preaching the truth. Siri, can you explain your analysis of Rick Warren's sermon to somebody who is a fan of Star Wars? You have a greater chance of successfully navigating an asteroid field than you do of hearing Rick Warren accurately teach the scriptures. Have you ever prayed a sun stand still prayer? Why would I do something as silly as that? The story of the sun standing still in Joshua chapter 10 is not about prayer. Looking in Joshua chapter 10 to learn how to pray is like asking your Macintosh to teach you how to use Windows 7. What do you think of Joel Osteen's sermons? Is this a joke? No, this is not a joke. I'd really like to know what you think of Joel Osteen's sermons. Words like junk food, cotton candy, and cancer-causing artificial sweeteners come to mind. Hello, I'm Brandon House with Worldview Weekend. I want to invite you to visit our website, worldviewweekend.com, and find out about my brand new book, Religious Trojan Horse. This is a book I've been working on for two and a half years, and it describes in great detail how the left and the right are coming together both religiously and spiritually to build a false dominant church. You can find all the details at worldviewweekend.com. Again, it's Religious Trojan Horse. It's 500 pages over 600 footnotes. Now, while you're at worldviewweekend.com, I'd like you also to check out our Situation Room. You can have access to over $8,000 in biblical Worldview Weekend resources, including over 1,400 MP3s of my daily radio show and biblical Worldview Weekend keynote presentations. You can also watch about 150 of our Worldview Weekend DVDs on demand as a member of the Situation Room. Full details for that are at situationroom.net, situationroom.net. You can also visit our website and find out about our free Biblical Worldview Weekend rallies held all over the country. All the details are at worldviewweekend.com. From the creators who brought you Bible Pants and Vision Lax comes the brand new super special awesome comedy album of the 21st century, Max Holiday's Birdcage Theater of the Budgie Cuts. Part 2. We here at Pirate Christian Studios have been hard at work crafting this album for maximum quality and hilarity. You'll cry. <coughs> you'll laugh. <laughs> you'll scream. <coughs> and you'll have uncontrollable flatulence. Just stick to the script, please. So sorry, um... Buy it now while stocks last. They download it. There is no supply which to run out. Oh, so you mean they can just go right onto iTunes and download it? Yes. Like right now? 
If they want to, yes. Oh. Well, the heck with this commercial. I'm off to buy it right now. Get back in there. We're not done yet. Max Holiday's Birdcage Theater, The Buddy Cuts Part 2. Disapproved of by Heretics Everywhere. Get it before they do. Warning, God's word is to be believed, not added to, not attacked, not denied, and not twisted. It is authoritative in what God has revealed. Exegete it, don't eisegete it or twist it. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, right there in the middle of the homepage, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. It's a great way to support us because with each new uh, crew member, that gives that basically builds a foundation financially that we can count on from month to month that helps even things out for us, which is really what we need. Um, and, of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the Donate button or make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith. Send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And also, it's not too late if you want to get your bake sale item for the summer. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash bake sale to get your T-shirt or uh, the bracelet that my mother-in-law made to help us get through the lean, mean, financially thin summer months. Okay, moving along. These are the sounds of the emergent postmodern Philomach Orchestra, conducted by Doug Paget, and their spirit-filled rendition of Strauss's Also Sprach Zarathustra, an homage to the philosophy of Friedrich Nietzsche. Having been set free from those limiting definitions of modernist notage, they now feel the spirit move them as they breathe life through the spirit into this wonderful piece of music. Brilliant, simply brilliant. Okay, so here's the here's the issue. Okay, what do you do if what, rather than adding to the Word of God, you spend your <laughs> your theological career being well radically skeptical and basically engaging in postmodern deconstruction, attacking the Bible so that you don't believe it? You know, the in fact, you <laughs> you you're basically you know you reduce the Bible down to just some mere man-made document that somehow kind of sort of records 
humanity's experiences with the divine, whatever he, she, or it is the divine. And and so you don't really believe the Bible, but you want to hang on to something of the Bible because yeah, otherwise, because you, you understand that the Bible's been kind of sort of important in Christian history. But you and you want to be considered a Christian theologian, but you really don't believe it anyway. So what do you do in a situation like that? I mean, that's really kind of what's happened to modernist and postmodernist uh, philosophers and theologians and skeptics. They cut themselves off from the Bible. In fact, everything they do theologically basically says, I don't believe God's word, and yet they want to be called Christians. Well, one of the symptoms of this is if if you've ever listened (laughs) to a modernist liberal or a postmodernist liberal try to talk about God, they always have all these qualifiers that they, they're engaging in because they don't ever want to make some you know, firm, bold assertion regarding God because you can't do that and uh, because you've cut yourself off from the only authority that you have regarding God, and that's God's word. And so the authority then resides in your personal ego or your fanciful speculations or your theological construct. And, and the more clever and original it is, the better props you get among those, uh, well, that, that, that crowd of people. Anyway, Tony Jones from his theobloggy <laughs> blog at patheos.com issued a challenge, and this is going on a week ago now, a challenge to progressive Theo bloggers. And uh, here's what he wrote. He says, I've been writing recently about the problems with liberal Christianity, even though he's a liberal himself, a postmodern liberal, not a modernist liberal. Big difference, by the way. Um, They come to similar conclusions, but how they get there actually matters. But he says, I had a thought this morning. it, It was prompted by a recent phone conversation I had with a managing editor of a major publishing house combined with my faithful listening to the theology nerd throwdown podcast and the silliness of all the hand-wringing about Chick-fil-A. These have prompted me to think that progressives have a God talk problem, (laughs) to which I would say, you think? Anyway, he says, that is progressives write lots of books and blog posts about social issues, the church, culture, society, but we don't write that much about God. That is, we don't say substantive things about who God is, what God does, (laughs) etc. There's a reason for that, Tony, because you've cut yourself off from what God has revealed in his word. How on earth can you, on the one hand, attack, demean, deconstruct, and throw doubt upon God's word, and then, on the other hand, turn around and say something substantive about who God is and what he does? Where do you intend to find this information about God that you can speak substantively about who he is and what he does? Uh, Do you intend to find it in tea leaves? Maybe you can go and sacrifice a small goat and then take its entrails and see if you can read those and, and tell us something substantive. Maybe you could look into the stars the way the astrologers do. Or maybe you should have breakfast with Jesus with Lenny Walker and Perry Noble. And maybe then you can say something substantive because, you know, then you have a direct re- experience, right? So he basically believes that progressive, liberal, and mainline theology has a PR problem. And so he's issued a challenge to all progressive theobloggers to write one post about God between now and August 15th. That would be tomorrow. And so the idea is that they need to say something substantive about God, to which I would basically say, I cannot wait to see 
<laughs> what progressive, liberal, and mainline theologians have to say substantively about God when they've attacked God's... They basically made their careers out of attacking God's words. So how can they say something substantive about him? I mean, where are they going to get this info? Well, how? Why should we believe it? I mean, even if they say something that is true about God, are they going to then pull up the Bible and reference scripture in order to say something substantive about God, they attack it. Okay. So they, they basic their theology, by the way, literally has its foundation set in the clouds. Liberal theology has their, their, the theology, their theological foundation set in the clouds and it wanders around and floating here and hither and yon and whatever. It's not grounded in scripture because they hate what God has substantively revealed about himself and God's word, and they prove that by constantly attacking it, demeaning it, deconstructing it, redefining it, and refusing to believe what is revealed there. So I can't wait to see, starting tomorrow, apparently, what, uh, maybe not tomorrow, but maybe Friday, the, the deadline's tomorrow, but may, you know, I can't wait to see what these progressive liberal mainline theologians have to say substantively about God and can't wait to find out where they claim this substantive information is coming from. I, oh, man, what a mess. So, okay, so here we kind of where the score is at the moment. Okay, we've looked at the charismatic uh, leaky cannoneers who, well, um, they place their experiences, direct revelations, silence, listening prayers, and and other things that, that they supposedly hear from God on you know, their little prayer journals. They put all that on par with or even above the the level of Scripture, and so they have they have not just one stream uh, of authority. They have God's Word and their experiences. I would say they have their experiences supplemented to some degree with God's Word, but the more important thing are the experiences. Then you have the liberal theologians who attack the authority of God's Word. And basically, you know, deconstructed, attack it, and then wouldn't you know it, one of them complains, why is that we're not saying anything substantive about God? Well, because you can't say anything substantive about God in a Christian context without the Bible, because the Bible is the inerrant, inspired word of God. It is God-breathed, it is Theonoustos, and it is to be believed, not attacked, and so you're left with not being able to say anything substantive about God, because that would require you to go to the Bible, the very thing that you hate, and attack in order to say something substantive. Good luck with that. But then, what do you what do you do? Uh, see, by the way, you see the problem here. The authority of Scripture is is denied by the leaky cannoneers. The authority of Scripture is attacked and denied vehemently by liberal, postmodern, and modernist theologians. But what do you do with somebody who, on the one hand, says, "I believe God's word is the word of God. I believe it's infallible and errant and all of those things." But then, when you look at their teaching, um, they treat basically the Bible as if it's a, well, um, uh, a wax nose. Here's our next update. Purpose, it keeps you going strong like a car with a full tank of gas. Everyone else has a purpose, so what's mine? Huh. Oh, look, here's a penny. It's from the year I was born. It's, it's a sign. I don't know how I know, but I'm gonna find my purpose. I don't know where I'm gonna look, but I'm gonna find my purpose. Sure that my life 
before it's too late. Yeah, that means we're going to be doing a Rick Warren update. That's uh, from Avenue Q, the musical. Anyway, uh, Rick Warren, from his daily hope, purpose-driven devotional blog... (laughs) Anyway, this is from yesterday. The name of the uh, this devotional is entitled The Four Benefits of Understanding Your Uniqueness. The Four Benefits of Understanding Your Uniqueness. Now, the reason I'm bringing this to bear here is because, well, Rick Warren supposedly is conservative, right? He affirms the inerrancy of Scripture. He believes that the Bible is the Word of God, unlike the um, liberals He doesn't attack its authority. He verbally affirms the authority of Scripture. Yet with every devotional that he writes at his Daily Hope um, purpose-driven devotional website and with every sermon that he preaches, with every book that he writes, his handling of the Word of God attacks and denies the authority of Scripture because he's not bound by what's revealed there. He treats the Bible as if it's one of those balloon animals. You know, you take your balloon animal, you, you blow it up, and then you twist it, and it turns into a puppy, or into a sword, or into a giraffe, or into a hippopotamus. He's really good at twisting and mangling God's word. He treats it like a wax nose. He treats it like silly putty. He treats it like, you know, well, it's one of those bendable, pliable, funny things that you can just make it into anything you want to. Prime example here is yesterday's devotional entitled The Four Benefits of Understanding Your uniqueness. Now, the the biblical nugget, <laughs> and that's all it is, from the New Living Translation is Psalm 139, verse 14. Psalm 139, verse 14 from the New Living Translation. Here we go. Ready? Thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. Your workmanship is marvelous. How well I know it. <laughs> yeah, wow, it, boy, that it just makes me sound like I'm just the best thing ever since, like, next to sliced toast. Anyway, um, okay, so let's read now what Rick Warren reveals to us that this verse is saying, all right? Once you understand your shape, it explains how you respond to authority, how you handle criticism, how you deal with confrontation. By the way, my shape is somewhat pear-shaped. I don't think that's what he means. I think he's referring to the saddleback purpose-driven shape thing it's it's kind of an inventory kind of like a myers-briggs uh, personality profile or a you know the disc test or you know, that other test that personality thing are you an otter a lion are you a hippopotamus hey, i forget how the uh, anyway so apparently psalm 139 verse 14 reveals to god is revealing to us that we need to take rick warren's shape inventory and understanding the benefits of of my uniqueness <laughs> so once you understand your shape, it explains how you respond to authority, how you handle criticism, how you deal with confrontation, how you make friends, how you deal with guilt, why you uh, get close to people or why you don't get close to people. Your shape explains what makes you mad, sad, worried, happy, because it's you. Really, Psalm 139 verse 14 is God, the Holy Spirit, is admonishing me to take a shape inventory? I don't think so. But he continues. He says, there are four benefits of discovering and building your life around your shape. S-H-A-P-E. That's your spiritual gifts, heart, abilities, personality, and experiences. Number one, it reduces stress. When you are confident in how you are shaped, you stop comparing yourself to other people. Instead, you build on your strengths, recognize your limitations, maximize what's good, you're good at, and don't worry about the rest. It's guaranteed less stress. 
Wow. Mm. So so Psalm 139.14 is all about me taking Rick Warren's shape inventory? Number two, taking your shape, understanding your shape will increase success. Success is not making a lot of money. It's knowing God's will and being right in the center of it. It's being what God meant you to be. It's figuring out what you are and then being you. Okay. And three, it deepens satisfaction. So if you ain't got no satisfaction, Psalm 139 verse 14 apparently is telling you to take Rick Warren's shape test so that you can deepen your satisfaction. A satisfying life is when you are doing what you're shaped to do. Freedom comes from doing what you're gifted to do. Notice all this is about me, 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 me. Not about Christ. Hmm. Number four, it builds self-esteem. There is an epidemic of low self-esteem in our society today. Studies say that over 50% of people are in the wrong job. <gasps> That's terrible. That's just, you know. By the way, um, recent biblical studies has revealed that 100% of all people born everywhere in every country all over the earth are born dead in trespasses and sins. Did you know that? Yeah, and the cross of Jesus Christ addresses that problem, but sorry, <clears throat> I digress. That's not the purpose of this um, purpose-driven devotional. So knowing your shape builds self-esteem, okay? I believe that genuine self-esteem is not built on positive thinking, but on two biblical truths. First, that you matter to God, and second, that you were shaped by God for a purpose. Ah, so now you can talk about this. Once you know your shape, spend some time evaluating how your time is spent. Are you pursuing activities or goals that God specifically shaped you to do? Would you say that you have been have a satisfying life? What is your satisfaction or contentment based on? Okay, so that was the Daily Hope devotional from yesterday from the PurposeDriven.com blog, um, Daily Hope with Rick Warren. Psalm 139, verse 14, apparently... There, God the Holy Spirit has inspired, well, inspired the the author of that psalm to get you to take a shape inventory developed by Saddleback so that you can reduce stress, increase success, deepen satisfaction, and build your self-esteem. Do you really think that that's what Psalm 139 is about? Well, let's take a look at the Bible. Again, the question that's kind of on the table at the moment is this, Okay. The uh, the leaky cannoneers in the charismatic movement, they attack the authority of Scripture and the sufficiency of Scripture by following after their listening prayers, their dreams, their, their prophecies, their extra-biblical revelation. The, the postmodern and, uh, and modernist liberals make a career out of attacking the Word of God and denying its inerrancy, denying that God wrote it, basically saying it's a man-made product, saying you can't trust it, and then they find themselves unable to actually say anything substantive about God because they've cut themselves off from the only source by which they could say anything substantive. And then you got somebody like Rick Warren who affirms the inerrancy of Scripture, but then when given the opportunity to teach the Bible doesn't seem to be very interested in teaching what the Bible says, but instead basically teaches his own ideas. Strange, isn't it? But Psalm 139, by the way, if, 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 if verse 17, when you read it, uh, sorry, verse 14, when you read this in context, you're going to realize this psalm ain't about you, and it's not about your shape. You know, I, <laughs> correct me here, but when King David wrote Psalm 139, Rick Warren and Saddleback Church in the shape inventory were not around. It would be a good 3,000 years before those showed up. So I seriously doubt that God the Holy Spirit had David write Psalm 139 verse 14 to encourage you to learn your shape. Okay, Let me read the whole psalm to you. You'll see when we get to verse 14 who the psalm actually, you'll get it in context and you realize, yeah, it's not teaching that. Here we go. Psalm 39 verse 1. 
O Lord, you have searched me and know me. I, You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You, Lord, search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all of my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I free, flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you, and the night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. Notice who this is about. This is about the Lord. And he, David here is praising God for his intimate knowledge of his creation and that there's nowhere that he can go where God isn't or where he's hidden from God. This is what the psalm is about. And he, then he goes on, For you, Lord, formed me, formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you. When I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I counted them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way to everlasting life. Interesting. This very psalm that Rick Warren twists, verse 14, to basically teach that God wants you to learn your shape is not about you or your shape. It's about the wonderful knowledge of God, the his omniscience, his omnipotence, his omnipresence. This is all about David praising God for all of these amazing things about him, right? And he says that the Lord's enemies are those who take the Lord's name in vain, who teach falsely. Well, who are those who teach falsely about God? Those who are leaky cannoneers, those who are modernist or postmodernist liberals who attack God's word, or those who verbally affirm the inerrancy of Scripture, but every time they open up the Scripture, they refuse to teach what it actually says. Instead, teach their own ideas and their own doctrines and twist God's word to support their ideas rather than bend the knee and bend their minds and bow the knee to God and his word and teach what he has revealed there. This psalm says that they are enemies of God. Hmm. Interesting. 
one thing they all have in common is they hate God's word because they refuse to believe it, to teach it, and to have their consciences bound by it. Yet God's word is theonoustos. It is God-breathed and is sufficient so that the man of God may be fully equipped for every good work. That's what scripture says. All right, we are up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. When we get back, sermon review time. Another grievous example of narcissistic eisegesis. And also from a text about Jesus, not us. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... Listening to Byron Christian Radio. If everybody had a Have you purchased your airline tickets for your summer getaway yet? If not, don't pay more for your airfare, hotel room, or rental car than you need to. Long-time Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheapo Air is your one-stop shop for all of your travel needs. And we've got a special promo code for you to use at Cheapo Air to save an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, then click on the web banner and book your travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase will go to support Pirate Christian Radio. That website address, again, is piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. And thank you for your support. Cowabunga. Okay, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith Sermon Review Time. Another egregious example of narcissistic eisegesis. Taking a biblical passage and making it about you. And in this case, the text in question is about Jesus. The good, the bad, the ugly, we review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via First Church of God, uh, Chambersburg, Chambersburg, Pennsylvania. A gentleman by the name of Chuck Frank presiding. He's a church planter filling in for the um, vacationing pastor there. 
The name of the sermon is Created to be Extraordinary. Created to be Extraordinary. Wow, with a name like that, um, who do you think the sermon's about? Jesus? Yeah, don't get your hopes up there. Um, trust me, this sermon's not about Jesus. Although the text that he reads is... This, no, this is a text about you. You are created to be extraordinary. Now let's see if he preaches law and gospel, sin and grace, repentance and the forgiveness of sins. Teaches us how Christ is our Savior who died on the cross for our sins and calls us to believe and trust in him for our salvation. Because Jesus truly is extraordinary. Or if somehow he finds a way to take this biblical text about Jesus and literally take Jesus and shove him off the pages and insert himself there and insert, well, you and me. Yeah, that's what's going on here. And again, I don't think, Chuck, if I were to sit down and have a coffee with him or have breakfast with him, even if I had a notepad, I don't think he would say things like, oh, I deny that the Bible is the word of God. I think he would probably say he believes that the Bible is the word of God. I think he would say he believes in the inerrancy of it. But what's the point in believing in the inerrancy and that the Bible is the word of God if when given the opportunity to teach it, you don't teach it for what it says and what God has revealed there, but basically just use God's word as a pretense for teaching about how wonderful you are? I think that's a fair question. Anyway, so let's kill the music without any further ado. Here's the sermon by Chuck Frank entitled, Created to be Extraordinary. Here we go. Good morning. Uh, Larry has to go now because once you've heard this message twice, you just can't take the third one. So, <laughs> no, thank you so much, Larry. He's been great uh, to, to really work, work things around this morning. So, uh, surprise, I'm not George, Pastor George, as you could probably tell. Um, just so glad he gets a well-deserved rest. By the way, I, uh, George and I were, were on a retreat uh, about a month ago. And I was going to bring it today, but we have a picture of us on ski You know, it's kind of pretty, if you can imagine that scene. Anyway, uh, speaking of surprise, uh, let's show this. Can you guys, can you go ahead and run that? What was that? I cramped up. Uh, this is a movie clip from the movie Get Smart. Okay. Together. Grimace every time with that. Classic scene from the movie Get Smart. Now, how many of you remember the TV show Get Smart, right? Oh, you all are so old. Oh, my God. Man, I couldn't believe that. I love that show. You know, for a couple different reasons. First of all, well, let's be honest. Maxwell Smart was this bumbling idiot, wasn't he? And boy, I can relate to that at times. Just ask my wife. And uh, secondly, he used to love, he'd always get himself in these precarious positions and situations that were impossible. I mean, you know, and it would get worse and worse. The more he would try, different things would get worse and worse and worse until finally he'd get to the point where he'd try something bold like that and he'd miss it by just that much. 
But somehow, somehow, surprisingly by the end, he would, something extraordinary would happen that Maxwell Smart would be, would be able to come through in the clutch. And sure enough, the mission would succeed. I love that show, Get Smart. You know, life surely is full of surprises, isn't it? You know, the fact is uh, probably no one is more surprised than me to be here today. Now, I know when you hear a guest speaker is here and he's the mission guy that's coming, you know, your expectations are like this low. Okay, so let's be honest. Let's be real. You know, I like to be real with people. And so I figure I got nowhere to go but up, but that's good. But the fact is, no one would expect me, would ever expect me to be here today as director of church planting and evangelism for the Eastern Regional Conference of the Churches of God. Nobody, I guarantee you. In fact, if I give you a snapshot of my life over the last 20, 25 years, 30 years, I was a radio, radio DJ in downtown Lancaster, PA, in a big FM station there. Uh, also, I was, spent 20 years in the restaurant business. Also, my wife Tammy and I had a retail business that we had in a couple of shopping centers and amusement parks along the way. And I can guarantee you, None of the people that probably knew me during that time stretch of 15 years could ever believe that I would be here today doing this. Impossible, impossible. And then God did the unbelievable in 1995, called, uh, called us to seminary, uh, to ministry. And for four years, I figured, what, God, why do you have me here? And sure enough, one night in 1999, I sat in this class by, that was being taught by, by a guy by the name of Jim Moss, who some of you may know. And at that night, I knew why I was born. I knew what I was created for. And Jim that night opened up this whole world called church planting to me that just has obviously changed my life. You know, life sure is full of surprises. Because then, you know what God would do? He would send us a year later down to Hagerstown, Maryland. Now, you need to know something. Tammy and I are full-blown introverts. And God sent us to a place that we knew nobody. Hello? To, To start a church? And sure enough, somehow God did the impossible. And, uh, and Now, just pause here for a second. Who's he preaching about? Uh, he's preaching about Chuck Frank. How much do you want to bet we're going to know more about Chuck Frank at the end of this sermon than we are going to learn about Jesus? Does anyone want to bet me on that? And after nine months, raised up a church, and we had over 200 plus after the first year and a half or so. And then two and a half years after that, we planted a second campus on the north side of town. And then three years after that, Crossroads sent us out back up to Lancaster, Pennsylvania, to plant a third church in a theater as well. And then four years and one week to the day, God called me into this position as director of church planting and evangelism for the ERC. Amazing. And now God's got us on this wild ride. I mean, it's unbelievable. Planning The goal was, as you heard uh, Larry talking about, the goal was to plant 20 churches by 2020. Don't tell my boss this, but we might have 20 by actually 2013. And I might be out of a job, you know? So uh, <laughs> anyway, no, praise the, yeah, praise the Lord. Absolutely. So fantastic. So anyway, talk about surprises. It was nice of you to say praise the Lord. Um, but so far, you haven't told us anything about the Lord. You're real. I mean, praise the Lord for all of the things you've done. Mm-hmm. I mean, who, who could have imagined? No way. Well, today I want to talk to you about the fact that you may not know it, but God has created you to be extraordinary. In fact, if you have your Bibles, or we're going to put the scripture up here on the screen, one of the most surprising chapters in the Bible, I think, is Luke chapter 10. And I love the story. It's become one of my favorite chapters to uh, teach out of. And I'm going to read some assorted verses, beginning in verse 1. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. He told them, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. 
Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Go, I am sending you out like lambs among wolves. Do not take a purse or bag or sandals and do not greet anyone on the road. When you enter a house, first say, peace to this house. And if a man of peace is there, you will, peace will rest on him. It will not return to you. It will, if not, it will return to you. Verse 8, when you enter a town and are welcomed, eat what is set before you, heal the sick who are there, and tell them the kingdom of God is near you. Verse 16, Jesus says, he who listens to you then listens to me. And he who rejects me rejects he who sent me. And the 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. I had a bonus. Wow. Verse 18, Jesus replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. He is skipping a very critical part of this chapter, but don't worry, I'll fill it in. I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Verse 23, then Jesus turns to his disciples and says privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings wanted to see what you see, but did not see it, and to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. I love that last verse, 24. It's become my theme verse in life. How can that be your theme verse? You didn't, you haven't seen Jesus. It's about him, you know. Um. Life really, it's amazing because here's Jesus talking to his disciples and followers then. And we can bring that into the year 2012 here to his followers and disciples here. He's saying, imagine the greatest people on the planet. Now, back in Jesus' day, they were prophets and kings. Uh, Jesus didn't say, imagine the greatest people on the planet. He's not saying that. Who would they be in our day? World leaders, Hollywood stars, sports figures, people that we think are the most important people on the planet. Jesus says, imagine the most important people on the planet. Just think who they are. Now, I want to tell you something, Jesus says. Guess what? You will see things that they will never see. You will hear things that they will never hear. Man, this is miserable. Okay, I'm sorry. I got to pause the sermon review here because he hopscotched through Luke 10. Now, listen, when I was a kid, I played hopscotch. I get how the game is played. I mean, you got the squares and you're supposed to jump one foot, you know, one foot up and you're supposed to hop into different squares. And then, you know, you got two feet. and And the idea is you throw a trinket into one of the things and that's the square you're supposed to hop over. But you're, listen, when you're teaching a biblical text, you're not supposed to hopscotch through the verses. Okay, you know, I mean, <laughs> that's, but that's exactly what he did. I mean, it's like he, he read a few verses, hopscotched some, and then landed on the others, and then kept going, and then hopscotched over some more. And the ones that he hopscotched over, you know, just, you know, totally avoided and didn't even mention, um, they give us the gist of what's really going on in this text. So that re- behooves me then at this point to go back and let's read the text and let's not play hopscotch. Yeah, you, when you're exegeting from the scriptures, hopscotch es no bueno. It's not good. You should not be doing it. Or as the Hebrews would say, loco cacto. This, this is not so good. Okay. So anyway, Luke chapter 10, verse 1. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. 
Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter first, say, Peace be to this house. If a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. If not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you, heal the sick in it, say to them, the kingdom of God has come near you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Now comes the woes. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than it will be for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you hears me. And the one who rejects you rejects me. And the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. Now, this is an important little piece of theology here in Luke chapter ten sixteen. The apostles whom Jesus is sending at this point, this is while they're still the disciples, they will become the apostles upon Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension. Okay? But here he's sending them. So they are, they are apostoloi in this sense. They are being sent. And Jesus says, the one who hears you hears me. Why? Because the apostles were preaching the words of Christ himself. Their authority didn't rest in themselves. They were Their authority rested in the message that they were given by Jesus to preach. So they were preaching the very words that Jesus gave them to preach. They were doing the very thing that Christ sent them to do. So the, the one who was hearing them, Jesus says, they were the, the ones who, was li, who were listening to the apostles, they were hearing Jesus. And not only that, they were hearing the one who sent Jesus, the Father. So the one who hears you hears me. The one who rejects you rejects me. The one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. Now, I'm going to point something out here. The Christian pastor who refuses to preach Christ, refuses to preach the words of Christ, is one who is rejecting the words of the apostles, and by doing so is rejecting Jesus, and by doing so is rejecting the Father who sent Christ. Very simple thing that we can correctly deduce from this passage. Verse 17. So the 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan falling like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are are written in heaven. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding, and you have revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by the Father, and no one knows the Son except for the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses 
to reveal him. So then turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are your eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see, and they did not see it, and to hear what you hear, and they did not hear it. What did the disciples see? Or should I say, who did the disciples see? They saw the Messiah. What did they hear? They heard the word of God being preached out of the mouth of God incarnate himself. This passage is all about Christ. And who did the apostles preach? Christ. Whose teaching did they teach? Christ's. Whose words did they profess, proclaim, announce, teach, and basically drill into everybody's heads? Christ's. Whose words did they record in the Gospels? Christ's. This is all about Jesus. They were blessed because they saw the Messiah, the promised one, the one who was promised all the way back in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve rebelled against God. The seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent, he was right there. The one promised and prophesied by Moses and the other prophets, he's right there. Blessed are their eyes, for they see who? Jesus. What are they seeing Jesus do? Perform miracles. They're hearing him preach and teach. The one who created the world by speaking into his existence was there right among them. Blessed are they because they were with Jesus. That's who this text is about. But watch where everything goes wrong in this sermon. You will experience things they will never, ever experience. You will. You will. You will. The greatest people on the planet won't experience what you will experience, Jesus says. When you get why you're here and what you're here for. Surprise! Uh, the text doesn't say when you get why you're here and what you're here for. You're inserting the purpose-driven false gospel into this text, and it's not there. This is eisegesis. As Jesus says, you've been created to be extraordinary. Now, how do you experience that? That's what we want to talk about today. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this opportunity again to come to Chambersburg first. I pray for Pastor George and Jane on this vacation that you indeed will bring them back well rested as well. We pray for the leadership of the church and the church itself as it goes forward to doing extraordinary things for you. Thank you now, Holy Spirit, for what you are about to do. I believe you are going to change lives in here now. Let us be open to what you say to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Surprise! You've been created to be extraordinary. Now, maybe you're not feeling real extraordinary right now. You know? Uh, can I point out the obvious here? I just read the whole text in context. Does this text say that you were created to be extraordinary? Nope, not at all. This text is about Jesus. Well, maybe, for example, your desk has got moved to next to the waste can, and now the waste can's about ready to get moved out to the dumpster outside. You know what I'm saying? It doesn't look real good. Maybe right now things aren't real well in the marriage or in the dating life, in the dating world for you. Maybe right now when you go home, even the dog doesn't greet you, you know? Maybe it's tough. Probably is. Tough world right now. So here I come in here today saying, guess what? Surprise! You've been created to be extraordinary. And you're not feeling real extraordinary. Well, does Jesus have a word for us today about that? Absolutely. What is it? What does God want you to know? Well, he wants you to know, believe it or not, no matter where you are right now in life, 
He has created you to be extraordinary. Now, how do you experience that? Well, first of all, we, if we go to our passage today, as we look at Luke chapter 10. There- yeah, really. You think this passage explains how we can experience being extraordinary? Really? There literally are 13 principles or what I call 13 P's that if you go through the entire chapter, you could really say all these things help. Really, there's 13 principles in here that we can just apply so that we can experience being extraordinary. That's not what this text is about at all. Help contribute to help us understand what the extraordinary life is. Now, since we have what, uh, to what, five o'clock? Is that right to be able to go? Well, you said I had an hour. Somebody has to, where am I at here? I'm, losing, so I'm, I'm seeing blue on both sides here. Uh, I guess not. I guess we'll have to kind of cut this back a little. So uh, what we want to do is look at just a couple of the essential principles right now that at least you can walk out today, you can put these in your toolkit and say, wow, this can help start me again to experiencing more of the extraordinary life that God has for me. And I'm going to move real fast at the speed of sound. Some of you know that I talk real fast, so catch up. Here we go. Uh, beginning in verse 1. So when it comes to experiencing the extraordinary life, the first principle for that is simply this. It's through knowing God's purpose for your life. It's through knowing God's purpose, P, purpose for your life. Notice, really, this text says that the way to experience the extraordinary life is by learning God's purpose for my life. I just read this text in context. It's not about that at all. Verse 1. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them out. He appointed. The key word there is appointed. Now, I know this. When I was younger, my mother used to appoint me to do This isn't about you being appointed for anything. This is a historical account. This has nothing to do with you. Certain things. So I knew I better do it. Why? Because she had a reason and she had a purpose for it. And I wasn't about to argue with her. You know what I'm saying? There was a purpose and the reason. Jesus we appointed them. He has a purpose for them. Now, I tried this at the last service and we quite had a couple fistfights break out, but maybe we seems like a, a gentler, kinder crowd. So uh, I want you to do, if you came with somebody today, and it's only if somebody you know, okay, don't try this on somebody you don't know, or they'll slap you. Uh, I want you just to turn to them right now and take a big piece of their skin and twist it and pinch them right in the arm. Come on, somebody you know right now. I want to hear some noise out there. You're not, nobody's doing a lot hard enough. Come on. Ow, thank you very much. Now, you, how many of you felt that? Good. You're alive, right? You're alive. I see I told you the fist fights are breaking out. You are alive. There's a reason for that. There's a reason that you felt that, that you experienced that, that you felt the tactile sensation of your skin being pinched, right? Now, what is it? What is it? Yesterday, I did a funeral for an 88-year-old woman. She was born day one with a faulty heart valve. But she knew she still had a reason for existing for 88 years. What about you? Why are you right now above ground rather than below? That has to be a reason for it. Yeah, I'm, I'm here to expose Bible twisters and heretics and people who will not teach God's word correctly. Strange that you would ask. Why are you inhaling oxygen right now? That has to be a reason for it. What's your purpose? I'm a real simple preacher. I truly believe this. Find out what God wants you to do and go do it. That's it. Well, if you're really a preacher, a Christian preacher, then you know that God's word commands preachers to preach the word and to show themselves approved who can rightly handle the word of truth. You've shown me by your inability to handle God's word 
that you're not a very good Christian preacher and maybe not even qualified to be a Christian preacher. It's one of the keys to life. Find out his purpose for what he wants you to do and go do it. So what is it? I'm a big football fan. And last week I was preaching in Harrisburg at Exponential, as a matter of fact. Like I said, we're going to learn a lot more about uh, Chuck Frank than we are about Jesus in this sermon. Don't you think that's a problem? I do. And I made note the fact that, of course, one of uh, the, in the early 90s, the Eagles had a, a football player running back by the name of Ricky Waters. Some of you may know from Harrisburg area, Bishop McDevitt. Great, great football player. He was an all-pro with the 49ers and then played for the Eagles and the Seahawks. And during the early 90s, he was with Philly. And... Uh, had a great career, and yet you know what? He's known for four words. You see, it turns out that during the season, I think it was the 92-93 season, he, when it was his first year in Philly, he went out for, he was, he was near the end of the game. The game was already over. I mean, they already, he knew he had no chance of winning. So he, they called his number to go out and catch a pass. So sure enough, he goes out of the backfield to catch the pass, and the quarterback throws the ball, and it's like over there. So here comes Rookie, he sees the balls over there, and rather than stretching out for the ball, he does one of these numbers and covers up. We call that alligator arms. He didn't try. He didn't even try to catch the ball. Well, after, you don't know, well, that doesn't go real well in Philly. So afterwards, the reporters came up to him and said, what was that all about, Ricky? I mean, you didn't lay out for the ball. You didn't try to catch it. You didn't try to take one for the team. You weren't playing for the team. What, what, what was that all about? And Ricky Waters, this great all-pro running back that probably now has this defining his career, said these four words. For who, for what? Ricky didn't know it, but really what he was giving was one of the prime theological questions of life. For who, for what? Ricky knew that for who, in this case, wasn't going to be for the team. (laughs) No way, i got to protect myself. Ricky knew that the what wasn't going to be stretching out for it, but was actually going to be kind of crouching and covering himself so when he would get hit, he wouldn't get injured. That defined who he was and what he did. Let me say this, folks, to you today. The for who and the for what is still going to define who you are and who you will be and where you will go and what kind of life you will experience. For whom are you living for? Because... Once you settle that, that determines the for what you're going to do in life. Jesus is telling us the for who is him. Because he has appointed us to go out. And the for what is to be sent out. Now, the two things about the for who. In this case, we know the for who is for him. But it was for everyone. All the 72 were sent out. Now, the 72, scholars agree, probably is a literal reference, symbolic reference, back to Genesis chapter 10. that talks about the 70 or the 72 nations, which represented everyone, which represented the entire world. Okay? So, when Jesus is saying this, he's literally sending everyone out. He's saying, all of you that are here today have a purpose. All of you, everyone, have a purpose. You're not just taking up space in that pew right now. You may feel like it. But you have a reason for existing. And that reason, Jesus says, is what? He sends them out. Our reason for existence is to be sent out to change the world. And that's the first key to living the extraordinary life. Mm, The Bible doesn't say that we're sent out to change the world. You will look long, you will look hard, and you will look fruitlessly without any Well, fruit for your search for the phrase, change the world. 
you know, any kind of passage that says you were created and sent by God to change the world. That is a different mission than the mission that Christ has sent the church out to do. To be sent. Now, I'm going to preach a little bit to the choir here. If you don't know the Lord, if you don't know, I've never made that decision for Jesus, keep coming back here. Keep sitting under Pastor George and the rest of the teachers and pastors here and the great worship and the part of this faith community because it's fantastic. And you, I pray, will meet the Lord personally. But for most of us in the room that probably have, uh, shall I say, sealed the deal, you know what I'm talking about? Made that decision for Jesus. Let me ask you a question. Okay, if God's sole goal for you was salvation, and obviously that's a prime goal. Then Notice the Pelagian heresy. And why are you still here? Why are you still on the planet? If you think about it, even what we did this morning, he didn't leave us here necessarily for our sole reason of being here. We had great worship this morning. Thank you so much, worship team. Fantastic to lead us to the throne of the Lord. However, we're going to be doing that in heaven. Now, we should worship here, but we're going to do that in heaven. So that's not the reason we have to be here now. Fellowshipping together like this. Well, we're going to do a lot of that in heaven, so that's not the reason. It's good to do this. The Bible tells us to do this, to meet weekly together, but that's not why we have to be here now. Doing ministry together, sure, but we'll do that in heaven. So what is it? What did God leave us here for? Well, it's been... Okay, you've got to point something out here. He's not engaging in a biblical teaching. He's not telling you what God's Word, what God's word says. This is all some extrapolation. And really, you could say this is philosophy or the teachings of men. He's engaging in some kind of, I don't know, philosophical, logical word game here. But he's not teaching us what the Bible says. He said that there are only two things in life that we as Christians can experience here on the planet Earth. What is all this focus on experience anyway? seems idolatrous to me. That we won't experience on in heaven. So obviously, it must be one of those two things that he left us for, right? Following me? So, well, one of them is sin. Obviously, we can sin while we're on the planet here. We won't do that in heaven. You think God left us here to sin? Shake your head. That means no. (laughs) Really, please. That means no. Well, the only other thing that we as Christians and believers can do here on earth that we won't do in heaven is mission. To be sent. To be sent to help change the world. That's what God's called you to. What- really, uh, where in the Bible does it say, I am sent to change the world? Can't think of any passage that says that. But somehow you arrived at this very sure conclusion of yours, not by reading it from a biblical passage, but basically engaging in philosophy. That's not how we in- come up with biblical revelation. We look into the Bible and we exegete out what the text says. I, I, I completely deny that I'm called and sent to change the world. I've never seen God say that to me in his word, so I deny your conclusion. I think it's faulty, false, wrong, and based upon your ideas, not what God has revealed in his word. He's called me to as well, to change the world. And I want to commend you, first of all, Chambersburg, you have been doing that. In fact, we have some pictures here that we're going to run through very quickly. A year and a half ago, I presented Pastor Earl with uh, the first ever church planting, legacy church planting award winning trophy there. And that was for the established church 
that would give that would help church planting the most. And you did that, of course, when you helped with exponential. Here's another one of your church plants up in Higher uh, Higher Hope up there in Elmira, Horseheads, New York, with Mike Schooley. And you can run through a couple of those pictures as you see people gathering in Jesus' name, learning to meet Jesus and being discipled in Jesus and growing under the, the pastoral leadership of Pastor Mike. And then, of course, there's exponential up in Harrisburg. The amazing things that God is doing. The fact is, in the first 21 months, 200 people have made faith commitments for Jesus. What's that? Have they been brought to repentance and trust in Christ alone for the forgiveness of their sins? Have they been regenerated? Have they been brought back to life from the dead as a result of the preaching of the gospel? Um, What's a faith commitment to follow Jesus? I'm not familiar biblically with that phrase or term or concept. Yeah, I think that deserves some applause. Woo! Way to go, God. And I love these pictures because let me tell you, this is what we exist for. Look at it. Because these people are at that moment professing to the fact that Jesus has changed their life. And they're now accepting relationship with him. Now, guess what? So they're professing that Jesus has changed their life. Is that the same thing as repentance and faith and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins? It doesn't sound the same to me. Exponential gets a lot of credit for that, but so do you. As you've prayed for them, as you've sent people out for them, as you've uh, supported them and financially given things, money to them as well, you're also part of that mission. Way to go, Chambersburg. Way to go. Fantastic. So it still comes back, though, the for who and the for what. Keep it up. Keep it up. Tammy and I uh, had some bad news about a year and a half ago that I shared at our annual conference when about a year and a half ago I got diagnosed with Parkinson's. And uh, it was a curveball. Never would have dreamt in a million years. Talk about life full being full of surprises. Couldn't have imagined it. I mean, I'm already at, you know, 50 plus and planning retirement, thinking what that's going to be like and how I'm going to do all these things. And all of a sudden, there comes all of a sudden. He's preaching about himself again. Like I said, we're learning a lot more about him, uh, Chuck Frank, than we are about Jesus. This huge, huge obstacle that's going to change probably a lot of that. And the Lord and I had some... uh, kind of tough conversations and it's kind of kind of like the book of psalms kind of stuff like god why are you doing this that was a good night and then i thought it was ironic i remember who was in the old testament jacob i guess wrestled with god in the old testament and of course wound up with a limp and of course part of parkinson's is eventually having a limp so i thought oh that's kind of that's kind of cute um yeah you could be just like jacob but finally, I have a good friend who says about having those come to Jesus moments. And the moment of having a come to Jesus moment occurred to me. Now it's about the for who and the for what. Because I can really live the rest of my life feeling sorry for myself and being all consumed with me and what I need. Or I can say, God, I want you to take this and use it to glorify you. Yet the sermon pretty much says that you're still obsessed with you because you took a text about Jesus and made it about you. You're preaching about you, not Jesus. You're preaching your life, not Jesus's life. Weird, huh? 
And then I do that, this stuff is going to change radically. The for what stuff, what I'm going to do. And when I had that moment that night on a retreat that was in Ohio, I said, okay, God, you win. I knew you would anyway. Sometimes it takes a long time, though. And I said, okay, God, I will no longer hide it. I will let it be, I'm asking you to glorify it wherever I go so that you can be brought glory. And now, I'll be honest with you, there's a verse that we read there in Luke 10. It says, do not, do not stop and meet, greet anybody on the road. Jesus isn't trying to be inhospitable, but he's saying, you know what? There's an urgency. He's saying, you know what? We've got to get to it, folks. Don't let anything stop you from what God's calling you to do. Nothing. People are dying. Ninety people in the last minute have died around the world that don't know Jesus. A million by the end of the week. Some of them are your family. Some of them are your friends. Some of the people you work with. Some people are in school. Some of the people you haven't even met yet. But they are dying and don't know the Lord. What are we waiting for? My question is, what are you waiting for? You're not actually preaching about Jesus and preaching his text correctly and his words correctly. What are you waiting for? If there's all this urgency, why aren't you actually teaching his word rightly so that people would know him rightly, know what he taught rightly, know what he said correctly, know what he did correctly? There has to be an urgency because every moment counts. It all matters now. And you know what? I thank the Lord that he's given me that opportunity to see that. But it's no different for any of us, is it? Because we never know. None of us do. It's the for who, the what, it's the purpose that God's created you for. Secondly, we also see in this passage that it's not only about the purpose, but it's also knowing if you really want to see God do mind-blowing stuff that's going to just blow your life away, it's also about using God's power in your life. Look at the text. Again, in verse, uh, verse uh, 2, we see, Ask the Lord, he says. In other words, you know what? You want to see power? It's got to come from me. Then he goes on to say, of course, in verse 16. He- no, he says, Ask the Lord of the harvest to send laborers into the harvest field. He doesn't just say, ask the Lord, as if somehow there's some principle here that we need to just ask the Lord and make sure we depend on his power. That's not what this text is about. Your principles are actually twisting God's word so that we can't hear and hear and learn it the way it was meant to be heard and learned. He who listens to you listens to me. In other words, when we open our mouths and do these things, guess what? It's not really us. It's him because it's his power. No, no. He who hears you hears me means that they were teaching Jesus's words and is what it is that he taught and did. Unbelievable. Verse 17, they come back and say, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. In other words, not my name, not Oprah's name, not Dr. Phil's name, but Jesus' name, because that's where the power comes from. And then in verse 18, he says, 19, he says, I have given you authority. It all comes from him. And yet we want to rely on everything we've got to do the right things. It's about his power working through you. Bible tells us in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 20 that literally we have the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. Let me ask you, is there anything more powerful than that? Of course not. Raising from the dead. It's in us. It's in us. 
I love the story of uh, during the Rose Bowl parade, there was a float that broke down right in the middle of the parade. And it was kind of embarrassing because uh, they found out that the float just basically ran out of gas. <laughs> but the thing that was even more embarrassing that was that the float was being sponsored by Standard Oil Company. The greatest gasoline-producing company in the world at that time. And yet it ran out of gas. Well, you know, sometimes, I don't know about you as Christians, I have, as a Christian, I sure haven't felt felt a whole lot of power, a whole lot of gas. In fact, we have a picture right here. And you know what this picture is? That's NASCAR in Lancaster County. (laughs) But don't you sometimes feel like you're in that buggy? You're stuck there, going nowhere. You got the fast track of life, and yet you got nowhere to go. You got no power, no energy. You got nothing working for you. And you're thinking, how am I ever going to get anywhere? Guess what? You're not. God's power is the one that has to lead you through. It's got to be about His power working through you. I love what Henry Blackaby once said in his book, Experiencing God. He said he got to the point in his spiritual life as he grew and grew. and That explains a lot. I love what Henry Blackaby said in his book, Experiencing God, which based is nothing. Henry Blackaby's work is nothing but false Bible twisting and basically saying, unless you're hearing from God, um, unless you're a leaky cannoneer, you're not really even a Christian. That's what literally what Blackaby teaches. That he realized that when he thought God was telling him to do something that he could do, he knew it wasn't coming from God. Really? So if God tells you something you can do, it's not from God. Let's apply this test to Scripture. Ephesians chapter 4. Okay, let's see if these these things are really from God. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Can you speak the truth? Well, you can. Well, then this isn't from God. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Okay, so uh, do not let the sun go down. Is this something you can do? Yes, it is. Well, therefore, it's not from God. Give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal. Okay, so are you a thief? Can you not steal? Yeah, you can. You can do that. So this means that's not from God. Rather, let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands. Can you do honest work with your own hands? Yeah, you can. Therefore, this isn't from God. Um, having, okay, having something to share with anyone in, in need. Can you, you know, ha- earn a little extra money so that you have something to share with those who are in need? Yes, you can. Therefore, this isn't from God. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths but only that which is good for building up and fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Can you do that? Can you have no corrupting talk come from your mouth? Yeah, you can. Therefore, this isn't from God. Do you see the absurdity of this? Folks, there is only one place for you to go to learn what a good work is. There is only one place for you to go. And it's not inside of your head or your heart looking for God nuggets or direct revelation or anything like that. You go to the written word of God. That's where you go to find out what a good work is and what it is that is God's will for your life. God wills you to be a good father, to be a good husband, to be a good mother, to be a good wife, to be a good and respectful and honoring son, daughter, or child. These are the things that God has called you to do. God wants you to do good at work, to serve your neighbor in your vocation, to speak the truth. You see, that those are the things that God in his word reveals for you to do. And using Blackaby's test, well... 
If it's something you can do, then it's not from God. Well, if we take that test and apply it to Scripture, then all of the good works that are given to us in Scripture to do, because we can do them, that must mean those sections of Scripture can't be from God. Isn't that the logical conclusion? Let me back this up just a little bit. I love what Henry Blackaby once said in his book, Experiencing God. He said he got to the point in his spiritual life as he grew and grew and grew that he realized that when he thought God was telling him to do something that he could do, he knew it wasn't coming from God because God calls us to do things we could never do. Really? That doesn't seem to be consistent at all with the passages I just read. Hmm. Strange, isn't it? We're going to just reject God's word and chase after the impossible thing that supposedly God is speaking into our hearts. Huh. Wow. I think, how many times do I, you know, I have good intentions. I want to say, God, use me. But you know what? I usually put a little, how should I say, box around that. Well, God, use me, but only use me in the things I'm good at. (laughs) <laughs> only use me in the things I'm comfortable with. You know, only use me in the things that don't uh, shit rock the boat, you know, that don't make it a little, make me a little nervous. Guess what? It's because you're counting on your power. It's not about your power. Now, God wants you to use your gifts, skills, and abilities. Each one of you have at least 600 different abilities, sociologists tell us. God's crafted you, made you into this, literally this masterpiece, as he tells us in Ephesians. However, He wants to use that, of course, for amazing things. But it's about his power that goes in front. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, a great English pastor, once said this, we can easily be too big for God, but we can never be too small. When has God done something phenomenal through you that you can't even explain? So notice this view of good works despises the very ordinary good works that we're called to do every day. Hmm. Now, the Bible also tells us in Ephesians chapter 3, that 16, that we can actually grow in that power. In other words, it's not a once-and-done deal once you say yes to Jesus. It's not, it doesn't stop there. He says, no, actually, we can grow and grow and grow in that power. Well, how do you grow in that power? Look at Luke 10. They, first of all, hung out with Jesus. We'll get to know Jesus better, of course. Secondly, they hung out together and fellowshiping together. Of course, keep doing that. That's how you grow, iron sharpening iron. Of course, they did ministry together. Of course, keep doing that. But ultimately, when God used them to do extraordinary things, you know how it happened? It happened through being sent out on mission to change the world. Uh, They weren't sent out to change the world. They were sent out to preach the kingdom in repentance. They could have never imagined. Remember, they come back in verse 17 and say, Lord, you didn't tell us this would happen, but even demons got expelled. Wow! Where did that come from? That's right. Jesus says, because it was me, not you, me working through you. Who do you think gets glorified when people see God do great things through you? Hmm. By the way you're preaching, probably just you. Him. I got news for you. There's 99.9% of people on the last, and I'm not trying to make me a spectacle here, but it's just my life story. Yeah, you are making you a spectacle, and you've made yourself the subject of this whole sermon. And yeah, you keep preaching your life story rather than rightly teaching Jesus. That is an abomination. And there's 99.9% of people from year 20, 25, and 30 years ago. They don't look at this, me doing this now, as something great that I've done. Because they know me. <laughs> they know me all too well. But you know what that says to him? It says, wow, look at the God who did something with that. Wow. 
See, God loves to use ordinary people to do extraordinary things. Look at Scripture all throughout. Every story in there is about somebody who was rather ordinary, Gideon. He was the weakest and the... No, every story in there is about Jesus. That's the point. That's what Jesus points out. He chastised the Pharisees. He said to them in John chapter 5, verse 39, You diligently search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. The scriptures, according to Jesus, are about Jesus. That's who they're about. You keep making them about the minor player rather than the main character. And because of that, you don't understand what the scriptures are about. You can't get what they really teach. You're blind because you keep sticking yourself in the middle of these stories when Jesus is the one who's supposed to be in the middle of them. At least God did amazing things through him. Story after story of people that nobody else wanted, rejects in life. And guess what? God takes them and, wow, does some miraculous stuff to them. You know, Moses, a stutterer. And yet God says, you know what? I'm going to do stuff that's just going to blow you away. Because it's about my power coming through you. It's a great story. Mark Batterson is a church planter down in D.C. Yeah, we know all about Mark Batterson. He's the one who teaches the heresy of the circle maker who basically has the audacity, and I mean that in the worst possible way, to claim and put in the mouth of God that God is, well, he's not happy with, he's insulted by small dreams, yet no passage in Scripture says that. He has the audacity to twist the story of Jericho and ask the question, what's your Jericho? He basically is taking the story of Honey the Circle Maker, which is not biblical, to teach us a story about, teach us about praying that contradicts how Jesus himself taught us to pray. I know all about Mark Batterson. And uh, he planted a church in Chicago, which failed the first time. Now he has, oh, he started with his family about six people. Now they have six campuses around D.C., really making a major impact in that political environment around there. He's now planted a church in uh, Berlin. So he tells the story in one of his books about a pastor friend of his by the name of Lee. Lee is pastor of one of the fastest growing churches in America. And yet, if you met Lee, you would never even believe he could be a pastor. He doesn't look like a pastor, doesn't walk like a pastor, doesn't talk, doesn't squawk like a pastor. Okay? And yet, he's pastor of one of the fastest growing churches in America. In fact, at one point, Lee felt that God was calling him to church plan. Now, you need to know, he was an executive for Microsoft Corporation at the time, making a six-figure income. He had also uh, accumulated 16,000 shares of stock, which at that time were valued at over a couple million dollars. So he felt the call by God to go and plant a church. Quit Microsoft, great job, right? And go plant a church. So he walks into Microsoft one day and says, I quit. You know what they said? Here's more money. (laughs) And you know what Lee said? Thanks, but no thanks. Lee quit that job, six-figure income, to take a $26,000 a year church planting position. Not only that, when he resigned, he also had to forfeit every share of stock. Now, I can think of a couple million reasons not to do that. But Lee did. And here's the thing Lee did also. He said to the Lord, for every share of stock, those 16,000 shares of stock, will you please replace it with one person being born into my king- your kingdom? about that. And guess what God's doing? <laughs> guess what God's doing? 
One of the fastest growing churches in America. Thousands worshiping there on the weekend. And literally in a baptism video, video, you can see literally hundreds streaming forward to be baptized. Leah, church planners working for Microsoft, working with widgets and gadgets and gadgets and computer stuff, called to church planting and mission? Huh? Who would think it? Lee knew it was his purpose. And he knew it was going to be about God's power. And lastly, in our story today, we see also to experience the extraordinary life, it's also through relying on God's provisions, like Lee did ahead of his own provisions. Notice, for example, in verse 3 here, Go, Jesus says, I am sending you out like lambs among wolves. Now, I was a farmer. Anybody else grew up on a farm? Okay, nobody? This is Chambersburg. There has to be people on a farm around here. Okay, thank you. (laughs) Well, it doesn't take a farmer's uh, mind to really answer this question correctly. If you put a lamb among a wolf, who gets devoured? Lamb, right? Right away. And so what's Jesus saying? Go out like lambs among wolves? Huh? Be willing to basically sacrifice it all, give it all up? And then, just in case his disciples and you and I today don't really get the message, (laughs) Jesus doesn't let himself the hook, does he? Verse 4, do not take a purse or bag or sandals and do not greet anyone on the road. Now, I'm no Einstein, but I know this. I know what's in a purse is money. And Jesus is suggesting to you and me today, if you think money is going to lead you to the extraordinary life, you will never... This passage isn't about the extraordinary life. This was a training mission trip that Jesus sent his disciples out on. Have it. In the bag was their possessions. In a later passage, Jesus tells them to take money with them then. Weird, huh? Jesus is saying to you and I today, if you think possessions is going to lead you to experience the extraordinary life, you will never have it. Those sandals represented safety, security, and comfort. They could easily run away from robbers and it was very secure and safe and comfortable. And Jesus is saying to you and I today, if you think safety, security, and comfort is going to lead to the extraordinary life, you will never have it. So he allegorizes the bag of money and all that kind of stuff. Complete twisting of God's word. Go without purse, bag, or sandals like lambs among wolves is the key to the extraordinary life. Why? Is Jesus against those things? No, he's not against money. Of course not. Is he against possessions? Of course not. Is he against safety, security, and comfort? Of course not. But he's against when we put those things here and his will, vision, and desire here. Yet none of the disciples were doing that. What leads you? This is a tough one, folks. We're in affluent America. Most of us are rather affluent compared to the rest of the world, right? I mean, no doubt. Even, even the poorest among us probably have affluency compared to most in the world. And yet, here in America, what are, what are the things we really strive for, even as Christians? The good job that pays well. The stuff that's the reward for working hard. And the safety, security, and comfort for my family to lead a good life. Folks, is that the gospel? In fact, we have a habit as Christians of saying, you know what? We mustn't be really experiencing the will or blessing of God if we don't have those things. Right? What does Luke 10 say? Again, Jesus is not against those things. He's against those being put ahead of him. When's the last thing that you tried something for time you tried something for God 
and you had no clue how you were going to do it. When was the last time that you as a church went into a budget meeting and said, you know what? We don't know how we'll be able to do this, but we think God's calling us to do this. Now, I know this church has a great history of actually doing that. So I'm preaching to the choir a little bit here. However, don't stop. Don't stop. When's the last time you said, God, this is going to put me in a situation way over my head and I got no clue how to get out of it, but I know you're calling me to do it. When was the last time? At the end of the 1800s was a movement in this country called the One-Way Missionary Movement. In that one-way missionary movement, the missionaries in this country would literally buy a casket, put all of their possessions into that casket, put a lid on it, and nail it down, and ship it to the land they were about to be stationed in. See, those missionaries knew that they were never coming back, and they knew they were going to be buried there. One such one-way missionary was a guy by the name of A.W. Milne. A.W. Milne felt the call to go to the New Hebrides Island. Funny thing. The New Hebrides Island was inhabited by headhunters and cannibals at that time. In fact, every missionary that had gone before had lost their head for Jesus. Knowing that, A.W. Milne still went. Shipped his casket ahead of him. Funny thing happened along the way. A.W. Milne didn't lose his head. In fact, 30 years later, he died of natural causes there in the New Hebrides Island. And when the natives gathered that day for his funeral, they wrote this epitaph. When he came, there was no light. When he left, there was no darkness. Wow. Now, who's A.W. Milne? What, what uh, message do you think he preached? Hmm. Bet you dollars to donuts he preached the gospel and God's word. Unlike what this guy's doing. Ever hear of him? Yeah, God used this guy that none of us in this room probably ever heard of in our life to do an amazing, extraordinary thing. And quite honestly, the world would look at A.W. Milne and say, are you crazy? Are you stupid? You mustn't have any kind of intelligence. Why would you go commit suicide and go to that place? Who do you think you are? What's God calling for you? What's your purpose, your reason for existence? Have you seen God's power do things that, quite honestly... Notice the browbeating they're getting if they haven't seen God's power in most amazing ways. Not, have it blown, not only blown you away, but blown people away that know you. And are we willing to really sacrifice everything we've got to do whatever it takes for the reason that we're here? Which is his mission. And yet the Apostle Paul says this, Aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands, as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and dependent on no one. By the way, that's 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. Work quietly with your hands? Hmm, doesn't seem to require the miraculous, does it? And yet, I can tell you that's a good work because it says so right there in God's word. Or are we settling for missing it by just that much? Father, we thank you for who you are. We've done. Sorry, he doesn't get to pray for us. 
created to be extraordinary. That was extraordinary heresy. That was extraordinary at missing the point. That was an extraordinary piece of obfuscation that robbed Christ of his glory and basically falsely taught what God revealed in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10, making it about you, telling you that if God has called if if you can't you can tell that God hasn't called you to do something if it's simple to do and you can actually do it. <sighs> Unbelievable. Unbelievable. This is just the latest example and believe me when I can tell you I can produce more. I can produce so many of these types of narcissistic eisegetical sermons that literally when I when you were done listening to them you would need a barf bucket. This is what's passing for Christian preaching in church after church after church after church. And many of them, not all of them, but the vast majority of them are associated with and directly linked to the purpose-driven and seeker-driven movements. They are corrupt trees bearing corrupt fruit that robs Christ of his glory and twists God's word and teaches deception and basically points people back to themselves rather than their crucified and risen Savior. As a result of it, the people who are in these types of churches remain dead in trespasses and sins. The people who are at these churches basically are deceived and taught to believe that the scriptures are about them and they miss Christ in the scriptures. As a result of missing Christ, they miss their Savior. As a result of missing their Savior, they miss the blessed and true gospel. The gospel that tells all of us sinners that Christ died for our sins and was raised again on the third day for our justification. They're not confronted with their sins. They're not brought to repentance of their sins. They're not brought to faith and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. Instead, they are admonished to make a decision to go and change the world. Yeah, there will be a lot of people in hell and cast into hell on the last day who made a decision to follow Jesus to change the world. Something to think about. All right, we're at the end of another edition of Fighting for the Faith. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.